Let's pray. Let's pray before we start. Father God, thank you today. Thank you for everything. And as we said this morning, thank you just doesn't really seem enough for all that today represents. That you, the King of glory, the maker of heaven and earth, came as a man to this earth, lived amongst us, and was rejected by men. And then put to a cruel, cruel death just because you loved us. Thank you just doesn't seem enough. And then you rose again, conquering death to bring us new life. And that sort of stuff we can't keep as a secret. We can't keep to ourselves that secret of new life, that wonderful life that is so different, so meaningful, so peaceful, so joyful. We can't keep it to ourselves. And yet we need your help to tell others about it. We need your Holy Spirit to be working in people's lives, to be telling your truth into their hearts. And yet you need us too. It's strange for us to think you need us too, but you do because you chose to use us. You've chosen to use our hands, our feet, our voices, our hearts, our love for others. You've chosen to use us. So I do pray that tonight you would equip us a little bit more to do that well. Equip us to speak your truth into people's lives and to really make a difference. On your behalf, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, on Tim's trail, relating. So we're talking about relational evangelism. We're talking about how having uh, friendships and getting involved in other people's lives makes a difference and how it's a really, in fact, the best way, probably, I would say, of getting people to know about Jesus, making, people, uh, making Jesus attractive to people who don't know him. Well, excuse me. I, um, I like to keep my eye on the press and see what's going on. And I spotted this week an article in the Scottish press. Oh, yes. And um, it's by the think tank called Theos. And they found that almost half of Britain, British people um, doubt the existence of God or are confirmed atheists. I was surprised it was that high. Furthermore, most of those who say that they're Christians don't practice their religion at all. I know lots of people like that, do you? Yes, I'm a Christian. My church is St. Margaret's that particular friend, I have never, ever, ever known her go there. But, you know, I, th I don't knock that. At least she, she, she's conscious that she has some kind of belief in God and she calls herself a Christian. But she's not active in her faith and she couldn't claim that she was in terms of, of getting involved in church life anyway. So, today, when all the supermarkets are full, I was going to say full of chocolate eggs, actually they're probably empty of chocolate eggs today, aren't they? And all our children's... Uh, Tummies and maybe some of us too are full of chocolate eggs. Many people, most people in this country don't actually know what it's all about. Not surprisingly, the Scottish Atheist Council welcomed the findings and they said that it showed that being a non-believer was no longer socially unacceptable. And I think that's probably true, don't you? I know when I was young, um, people believed it was part of the way things were in society and... Um, it was just, a, you know, people generally say, if you'd ask most people if there was a God, they would have said yes. But now, it seems, the Scottish Atheist Society, at least, would say that it's socially acceptable not to believe in God. However, looking further at the papers this week, I also discovered that... I don't want you to think I spend a lot of time with the paper. You know, don't get, that, don't get the wrong end of the stick there, will you? It's not that. Um, I spotted this one. Research presented at the Royal Economic Society's annual conference, so they should know what they're talking about, surely, says that religion can improve people's sense of well-being. Fancy that. <laughs> they, they really think that it can, and they've found that people who believe in God are happier than those who don't. People who believe in God are happier than agnostics, too, that people who aren't sure and certainly happier than atheists. They found that religious people were better able to cope with, with disappointments, such as unemployment or divorce, than non-believers. There's more. They also found that people became even happier 
the more they prayed and the more they went to church. There was a correlation there. They found that believers uh, enjoy a higher level of satisfaction, suffer from less psychosis, you'll be pleased to know, and are less bothered, less um, brought down by adverse uh, events in their life. The authors deduced, this was their conclusion, religion tempers the impact of adverse life events. So that's how an academic would sum up what we believe in and are so passionate about. So what we're going to explore again a bit further tonight is telling Jesus, telling people about Jesus. Do you know lots of people out there don't know what we know? They don't, it's not that they know about Jesus and have chosen to reject him. They don't know what's on offer. They don't know what Jesus says. We, it's not an option for us to go and tell the good news. It's a command. It's a commandment. Jesus said very clearly... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And this is a good bit, isn't it? And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we have to do it, but Jesus goes with us. And actually, if, we, if Jesus isn't with us, if the Holy Spirit isn't within us and working in the lives of those we're talking to, we might as well give up and go home. J. John said about this and our duty to tell others about Jesus. J. John said in his recent book, um, most of us are like Arctic rivers when it comes to this area because we're frozen at the mouth. <laughs> most of us have missed opportunities to talk about Jesus to our friends, our relatives. We know we have work colleagues, colleagues, and most of the, us, I, would, I won't ask you to put up your hands, but if I did, I guess most of us would put our hands up if, we, if I said, who has reservations about telling other people about Jesus? Well, except maybe Julie. I don't suppose she'd put her hand up. <laughs> the Bible says, fearing, fearing people is a dangerous trap in Proverbs 29, 25. And that sums up most of us, I think. Our fear is other people. It is for me, you know, and, 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 and Proverbs says specifically that that is a danger for us. We need to follow Jesus, who modelled this relationship evangelism. He was known as a friend of sinners. He had friends in all sorts of, from all sorts of backgrounds, and he went to meet with them, as we'll see in a, a little while. We need, but in order to do that, in order to meet with people, in order to, for them to relate to us, we need to, uh, to earn the right to speak into people's lives especially now in these times. We need to earn the right. We need what you could call relational equity. We need to have built up trust. We need to be part of people's lives if they're going to have any, if they're going to listen to what we say. Why should anyone consider that we have anything credible or useful to say if they don't know us, they don't trust us? Why should they listen? Don't worry about what you don't know, because that's another fear, isn't it? I don't know enough. I don't know all the technicalities. What if someone asks me a difficult question? Share what you know. Because if you're a Christian, you know that God changes lives. Tell people how he's changed yours. You know that. You know that story better than anyone else, and we're going to come back to that. Just in case the Great Commission wasn't enough for you, Jesus also said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me... I am sending you. By the way, that is you, not the person sitting next to you, the person sitting behind you, the person who's got more of an education than you, the person who's more articulate than you, more Bible, has more Bible knowledge, not them, well, yes, them too, but actually you. It's not that he sent some of us. He sent all of us. It means us. So, you know, we've all got to get a hang of this. I'm sure that some of us will find it easier than others, but it's, it's, it's our responsibility. Times have changed, you know. From, from when um, I was younger, I remember um, that the, this was the case. You know, people, Christianity was part of the way of life. We called it the, um, the, the age of modernism. It was, it was uh, this is truth with truth. You know, there was objective truth. We knew what was right and wrong. There wasn't any of this grey business. We knew what was right and wrong. 
We accepted the Bible as generally true. I think there was a little bit of argument about whether it was uh, actually true, whether the creation ha actually happened in seven days, or whether... Um, there's a bit of a trend for this at the moment, isn't there? Um, but generally people believed it was true, or they didn't care. Um, Christianity was thought to, to seen as a good thing, or at least it was harmless, and church was a good thing. Scientific proof was key. Um, you know, if something, if you, something could be proved scientifically, then you believed it. What we found now, and people were sometimes agnostic. If they weren't Christians, then they were generally agnostic. There were, there were less atheists, I would, I would seek to suggest, in, in I know, probably 30 years ago. So everyone in society, most people in society, were aware and familiar with the general claims of the gospel, the basic truths of Christianity. I remember my school assemblies were, gen were a staple diet of Christian hymns and the Lord's Prayer. It wasn't a Christian school. It was just part of the way society did things. It was part of the way society educated children. I remember it well. But now, in the postmodern era, things are very different. And that's what I've called ignostic. People are ignorant of, of things about Christian faith. They often know nothing. People probably of 30 and below will often know nothing about the Christian faith. So that puts an onus on us because we can't take for granted a lot of that which we're used to. We need to start from a much lower base. In fact, an assumption that people know nothing about Christianity, nothing about its claims, nothing about who Jesus is. Bible basics are important, but the key to all this is showing your life to people. It's no longer any good to um, just talk about proof. So... The questions are different. The time I'm talking about, the modern era, you know, when, when I was young, um, younger, um, <laughs> the, main, the main question people asked was, is it true? Is there proof? And I remember that the way we used to um, do evangelism then was we had lots of um, big evangelists who, I remember we had a Christian union and we had a, Ian Knox came and did a, a, a big uh, event, spoke every night of the week, proving that the gospel was true. And there was Billy Graham and Louis Palau, and hundreds of people came to faith, because largely because they stood up at the front and persuaded people that the Bible and what it said in its claims were true. Now, now proof of truth is not enough. What people want is experience. What they believe is, um, if you can tell them what happened in your life, then they'll believe it. So the, we don't say, is it true anymore? They say, does it work? And actually, you see people believing in all sorts of silly stuff because it, they think it works. I think that's part of the reason that the whole new age thing has taken off because some of that stuff does work for other reasons, which we can talk about another time. So the key question that's being asked of us today is, does it work? And the most powerful way to, to, to show people that it works is to tell your own story. There is nothing so powerful as an I message. An I message is something about yourself, your own experience. No one can deny it. If I say Jesus has changed my life, he's brought peace where there was anguish. He's brought joy where there was sadness. What can you say to me? You can't say, no, he hasn't, Heather. Well, that wouldn't make sense, would it? My, my story is really powerful, especially in this postmodern world where experience counts. That's what people want to hear. So let's look at what counts now. I've already said life experience counts now. The majority of all the research shows that the majority of people who come to faith now do so in the context of either friends, network of friends or family, almost always and relationships are key. One of the things that helps us with this is that in the modern era, years ago, people had a spiritual hunger. God's put it in us. You know, there's a, there's a searching in us. There's, a, there's something which says there is a higher power. There's something I'm looking for. That, and, and years ago, I think, that used to be satisfied by this wishy-washy Christianity, you know, that was somewhere state-level I didn't have to actually own myself. Yes, we said the Lord's Prayer. Yes, we sung hymns in school, but actually I didn't have to own it. It was kind of nebulous, kind of cloudy. 
and that fulfilled, to some degree, people's spiritual longing. Enough, probably, to keep them often not to ask too many questions and to find it for themselves. Now, that spiritual long, that's, do you know what I mean? That spiritual hunger remains, but society's shrugging its shoulders. So that's to our advantage, because our stories can be begin to fill that void. As we tell people how our spiritual hunger has been satisfied, then that's a powerful thing. It meets people where their need is. This won't work. <laughs> That's, I think that's, I love the one on, the, on your right, look. He's got his Bible shoved in his mouth. Because I think that's what we used to do. I think I, when I was in the Christian Union and we were students, we used to go around knocking on doors and forcing our way in and say, you need this truth. But actually, I, I don't know whether maybe, I mean, people did come to faith. It would seem to be right for them. Although I never actually shoved a Bible in anybody's mouth like that. Honest, I didn't. We did have things, I remember big stickers that said things like, Jesus loves you in great big fluorescent orange and stuff like that, which I think now probably wouldn't be as effective. And I remember we had endless debates in philosophy about objective truth, but not now. So how do we do it? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. It's all of our lives that count. Yes, we most tell our stories, and I'm going to come back to that. But actually, being the person you are, living your Christian life, and allowing it to make a difference and be demonstrated, the whole of your life is like a tableau for people to see what it's like, what a Christian is. You're on show. Now, I don't mean that you need to be perfect. Because if we were perfect, I would suggest we would be very unattractive. Because non-Christians would look at us and think, oh, I could never be like that. Oh, Christians, and it is not for me, I could never be perfect. We're not, we're not perfect, are we? We don't need to be to be an example, but we do need to show, to demonstrate by all of our lives, what difference Jesus makes to us. Be real, but show the difference, talk about it, live it. The other thing we must do, of course, is pray. I know you know this, but I thought I'd put it in anyway. Watching The Passion, I haven't seen it all, but I, w I watched an episode yesterday, Friday, um, reminded me that Jesus needed to pray. Jesus went away alone to pray. Now, if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to do that, to seek help in what he was doing, how much more do we need to do that? Maybe it seems a big step to, to think of a friend who's not a Christian at all and ask for them to come to faith. What I suggest is pray them along the way. You might be able to have enough faith to pray that you'd have an opportunity to tell them you're a Christian or an opportunity to, not even that, to invite them to something social, invite them to your house for dinner or something like that. Just a little tiny step. Then when it happens, pray that you might have an opportunity to tell them you're a Christian. Pray that you might have an opportunity to bring them to, you know, little steps along the way. That's how I found it, that it, I found that helpful to me because I've got, I can do that. I can pray for the next step. Pray, pray, every step. And trip, prayer triplets and people that you pray with are really helpful in keeping you diligent, in keeping you faithful. If you have some people that you can together pray with that you've identified together. Angela is someone that we prayed for in our house for a long time, very hard, very faithfully. <laughs> and she's going to come and tell you uh, her story about relational evangelism and what happened in her life. Um, my memories of growing up a ch uh, in a church in London... Um, of experiencing community and relationships within a church um, are probably, from the perspective of a young person, and may not be the true picture. But what I actually remember is criticism and not close relationships. So when years later, Robert and I moved to Felixstowe, which felt like moving to the ends of the earth, no idea, it was crazy, with two young babies and met Heather and Yvonne uh, with their kind of Christianity. Uh, it was very new. 
And what was new? Caring, giving time, opening homes, hospitality, encouragement, sharing of possessions, support. This kind of living made a huge impression. Then when Heather invited us to Burlington for Alice's dedication 21 years ago, it was easy to accept. We were welcomed here. We kept coming. People were interested in us. Uh, Martin Travers, the minister, um, was the first minister or vicar to ever ask me what I believed. I said I hadn't made my mind up. We could be open and honest here. The creche and junior church facilities welcomed our children, one with special needs, no fuss, just care, love and nurture. And after sermons and membership course, dipping into prayer and house groups for two and a half years, the penny dropped, it made sense. God spoke to me through various things in one morning service here, and I knew that I believed. And I was baptised about a month later, and the children dedicated a little while after that. And here I am today, committed to this church family. So it wasn't in my upbringing at all to make relationships building a priority. As a family, in my childhood, we didn't have friends round. My parents did not build up friendships. I have learned through Heather and Yvonne's example, and then others here, and through God's word, of the importance of relationship building. And having a young family of our own, we kind of tried to grow in giving hospitality and, and maintaining relationships. And some of you will have heard Robert, uh, you will have heard Phil read out during Heather's sermon on being a church family, uh, what Robert expressed about how the church family was and is so important and such a support to us when our daughter Sarah died four years ago. Because we had sought to maintain and grow our relationships, the support was there for us immediately, naturally, and for our children. Our friendships have in part been naturally with other families. Our children grew their own relationships with our friends' children, through preschool days, school days, and now into adulthood. So when Sarah died so suddenly, there was a peer support group for my girls, the teenagers who were amazing. They visited, cried, chatted, walked, ate, and reminisced together in those difficult days. And Claire, as youth minister, and Kerry, who placed priority on relationship building with our young people, were there at a real and meaningful level too. So I'm thrilled when I hear in Tiddlywinks of our young families spending time together and building relationships that can matter so much. And I've also been thrilled with 40 Days of Community, which has really helped me to develop my experience of church community, particularly with my small group. Uh, when we, we did some gardening and in our small group on Monday, and uh, it was brilliant. And I feel, as a little small group, we could do anything. I feel we could change the world. I'm inspired. Um, I hear of other small groups supporting each other and working together. I think it's contagious, and I think the potential through relationship building here is very exciting. Thank you. I cried when I read that story. Angela sent me a, an email and I cried. And you know, Ivana, I'm sure Yvonne would agree, we didn't do anything special when we met Angela. She was very easy to love, as you can imagine. But we were just friends. We, just fre we were just friends. We didn't do anything special. We were just friends. So just, I hope that's a powerful story for you. And I, I think um, uh, at Tiddlywinks now and Mums Group for us were, were key, key uh, places to make those relationships. And we've seen several, many people come to faith through those groups over the years. So building friendships. There's no rocket science here, but I do recognise that some, for some of you, this is much easier than others. Making friends, but building relationships comes naturally to some of you, like falling off a log. And there are others for whom it's a bit of a puzzle, a bit of a mystery. 
biggest challenge, I think, for us as Christians is making links with people who aren't Christians. What we find is that, of course, as lo as the longer someone's a Christian, the more and more time they tend to spend with Christians, and the fewer and fewer non-Christians they know or have any contact with, particularly if they're not in regular work. We have to be, be in, intentional about making and keeping contacts with people who aren't Christians. Sometimes this means taking up a hobby that we, wouldn't, that we, that we hadn't done before or, or resurrecting an old hobby, doing something, going dancing maybe, or, learn, or, or going to a debating society, or something intentionally to, make, to bring yourself into contact with non-Christians. Not only that, I would suggest that some of us need to change our thinking habits. Now, and I think, I think there probably is a bit of a difference between men and women here, just from my own observation. If some of us girls say, um, oh, there's a... You'll laugh. I'm, I'm trying to give you an example you won't tease me for, but I'll use this one. Say there's a fashion show on in town... Um, us girls would, might ring around a few girls and say, this is on 7 o'clock next Thursday, shall I get you a ticket? Now, what goes through my head, and I know, I'm, I know my friends well enough to know the same, is not, first, do I want to go to a fashion show? It's, oh, that'll be nice to see my friends and go out and have a laugh and have a drink after maybe. That'll be a nice social evening. Oh, yeah, and fashion show's okay. Now, other friends of mine, and maybe they tend to be male, might get an invitation to see, say, a film. Say, say some other fella rings up and says, would you like to go and see, um, I don't know, the latest James Bond film? Now, I think to, to suggest that the first thing that goes into their head is, now, do I want to see that film? No, I don't want to see that film. No, thanks. And the date's off, straight away, because it was the wrong film. Now, do you see what I'm saying? What we need to do is change the way we think. So when we get an opportunity or an invitation or we see an event that we might ask other people to, the first question that comes into our head is not, do I want to do this thing? It's, how much of this is this an opportunity for, for me to build up relationships? So it's a different mindset to how we interact with people. Obviously, I am not asking you to sign up for singing lessons if you are tone deaf. I'm not asking you to take up swimming lessons if you're terrified of water, but just, I'm just saying, you know, reach out a bit. Consider doing some things that wouldn't naturally have come to you, necessarily. Make an effort to make contact with people you wouldn't otherwise have met. And to do it when actually the alternative maybe of sitting by the fire with a book or a newspaper is very attractive. Get up out of your chair and do it because you can think what's at stake ultimately. You've probably realised it says there, um, no it doesn't, but anyway, it's, it's really important that the friendships you make are really good ones. You need to be reliable, you need to be a good friend. You need to do life together. And I think um, in my life the people that have really come in and made a difference have been people that have just been there when things have happened not only the big huge stuff like Angela talked about when Sarah died but also the small stuff you know the fairly trivial stuff I remember one non-Christian friend of mine was really touched because one of us took her a bunch of flowers the day she heard and was really upset that her son hadn't got into a particular school she wanted you know one of the church schools and how difficult they are to get into he hadn't got in and she was really moved that one of her Christian friends had had thought about that and recognised how it hurt her and had taken her some flowers. It's about doing life, living every day. That hadn't got anything to do with saying I'm a Christian. It was just being a friend. I think some of you might wonder whether I'm talking about making friends just so that we can help them become a Christian. Well, that seems a bit cynical to me. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that people are worth building relationships with because God loves them. Look where we are today, Easter Day. God would have come to the earth to die for that person, even if they'd been the only person on the planet. So there's no one that we shouldn't value, shouldn't love, shouldn't long to know Jesus, that isn't worth making a relationship with because they're valuable, even if they never make a decision for Jesus. 
To be their friend is something genuine we can offer that reflects God's love for them. So what sort of skills do we need for this? Well, love, love, love is what I've put at the top. I'm not going to sing it. Um, But it's something good, no. Um, You know, living a life that is a generous one, that puts other people before yourself, the getting out of the armchair when actually you'd rather stay there, the going to something that's not ideal, the putting yourself out, just showing a life that's different. Because, you know, many of your non-Christian contacts to be friends will never have had an example of unconditional love in their life. Many of them will only have known love that's been dependent on them being good, being well-behaved, achieving well at school, doing well in their job, and they will believe deep within themselves, even if they couldn't articulate it, that love is dependent on their achievement. You, as a Christian friend, can show them a different approach. You can love them, you can be their friend, reliable and true, whatever even if they're not reliable and faithful friends. Um, In Luke 5, 29 to 32, it says says about Jesus going to the places where the people were. Do you remember where he's uh, meeting with tax collectors and sinners and they question him about it? It says, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. So they must have been good friends, wasn't they? for Levi to call a banquet for him. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repent. So I'd suggest that if you're going out to meet people, you're going to make friends with people who, who don't know Jesus, you might, have to, you might find yourself in places that you wouldn't normally go. You might find yourself, oh, in the pub, certainly, certainly in the pub. You might find yourself, um, oh, I don't know, at a bowling alley. You might, find yourself, you, know, you might find yourself in places that you wouldn't really choose to go. Go there. Jesus did. He set the example. We need to do it too. I think I mentioned before, I, the reason it wasn't on the other slide was because I could often put it on this one. We need to be really good friends. We need to be really reliable friends. Why should they choose you as a friend? Why shouldn't they just move on to someone else? Because you're a really good friend. If you say you're going to turn up, you're there. You remember their birthdays. You remember to be there. when You, they remember, you, remember, what they, you remember what challenge they've got on that week, and you remember to ring them up and say, because you care, because you genuinely do, you're a great friend that's important and generally as they, and as they gradually as they get to know you you're revealing your faith to them as you go because it's the way of your life your whole life not just the bit that says church but the way you live and the way Christ impacts your life throughout um, so they were some of the key skills I thought we needed in this job of ours, of telling other people about Jesus. But there's, there's, a couple, there's, there's three more that I've picked out for special attention. Listening skills. This, I, I couldn't resist this little advert to put in there. Can you read it? It says, I'll listen, you do all the talking, and I'll do all the listening. The cost is $25 for half an hour. <laughs> It's a bit of an indictment, I think, on the quality of listening that most of us do, really, if people might just pay to be heard. But, you know, listening is a really powerful thing. To be really heard is affirming, makes people feel valued, makes people feel that they matter. That's real listening, and that's ever so hard to do. Have you ever been listening to someone... Oh, that you think you're, yeah, you think they're listening to you and they're sort of looking at you attentively, apparently, and suddenly, this happened to me the other day, they reach forward and just tuck in the label at the back of your neck. And suddenly, it wasn't Phil, Yvonne. The magic, <laughs> she's, just, she's just cuffing him. <laughs> um, the, the, the magic had gone. The moment had gone. I knew that they weren't interested in what I was saying. They were thinking about something over my shoulder and had to, 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 they caught sight of my label. Um, you know what it's like if you, listen, if you think someone's listening to you and they just watch someone go by. 
I'll just see someone go by the window. It doesn't work. Real listening is really difficult to do. And largely it's because we're not actually sometimes very interested in other people's lives. Some of us are, some of us aren't. And I would really encourage you to develop an interest in people's lives. Because actually when you start to pay attention, they're really interesting. I'm going to tell you a trick about listening, active listening. Now, if you know this already, I hope you put it into practice. But I'm going to tell you a little trick about how to listen to other people. How to listen to people and get them to tell you a little bit more than they'd intended. Just to lead them on a bit further into the detail. It's called active listening. When someone says something to you, anything, you can just repeat the last few words of what they've said. And I bet you they will carry on talking. Julie. <laughs> Talk to me about anything. What did you, what did you do this afternoon? Um, I had uh, lunch with my in-laws this afternoon. Lunch with your in-laws? Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, I cooked lamb for my in-laws. <laughs> you cooked lamb for your in-laws? Yeah, it was really nice. It was a Jamie Oliver recipe, which was in the oven for five hours while I was at church. Five hours? Yeah, five whole hours. <laughs> it works. Thank you, Julie. It works, honestly, and you feel such a nana doing it. But it works. I've practiced on Phil no end of times. <laughs> He's never noticed. Honestly. It's easy. <laughs> Try it this week. You will be amazed. It's just a little technique that gets people just to tell you a little bit more. I made the mistake there of saying it before I asked it. I know. But don't, don't tell them what you're going to do, obviously. Just try it, and you will be amazed. It gets people talking, because it shows that you're listening, you're attentive. And it just coaxes a bit more out of them. Listening's a really important thing. But you know, not only listening is important, talking is important too. When I meet new people, and you know, you're just sort of sussing each other out a bit, and I've met lots of new people at college recently, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite chatty really. I quite talk quite a lot. I know that'll surprise you, but I do. Um, I find that <laughs> I feel very relaxed with people if they talk to me too. You know how annoying it is if people talk all the time, don't you? That's, you know, and, and aren't interested in you at all. That's difficult. But I find it difficult too if they let me talk all the time. If they want to know about my life, my problems, my joys, my children, my holidays. But they don't tell me anything about themselves. That's not a relationship, that's an inquest, that's an interview, you know? So what I'd say to you is, yes, do the listening, yes, do the interest in people's lives, find out about them, really genuinely care and pay attention, but also give them something back, because all true friendships are reciprocal. You need to give a bit, you need to show that you trust them, and actually that can be risky. I suspect, I'm sorry guys, but I think that as women find it easier to share something of ourselves than men do, generally speaking, not always. But it might be something that you guys have to work a little bit harder at, to share something of yourself. My observation um, from working with groups of mainly men at work when I was at, at Endeavour House, because all this, most of the senior people were men. So I was in meetings with these guys, and I, my observation was that when you got a group of men together, they would talk about out there stuff. So they'd talk about the football, the weather maybe, the price of shares, the politics of the council. It's all out there. And they'd be chatting away, and they'd be, you know, sort of just, you know, a bit of banter. And they'd, they'd think that was friendship. Women... I would say, not, I'm not, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying it's men and women, but there's just a bit of a tendency here, I think, where the skills lie or the personalities lie. Women, if you've got a group of women together, um, in the same organisation, um, at a similar level, they would tend to talk about stuff in here. They talk about how they're feeling about their job. They talk about their family and what's happening with their kids. They talk about their ambitions. It's in here stuff. And you know where the relationships grow fastest, don't you? 
It's in amongst the people that talk about stuff, in here stuff. So I would encourage you to share a bit of stuff. <laughs> Get us from inside you. <laughs> share a bit of what's in here. Especially you, dare I say it, you guys who don't, just doesn't come naturally to you. Be intentional about it. Think, right, let's make an effort here. Because that's the way bridges are made that are longer lasting and then are more meaningful in terms of relationship. So, listening's important, but so is talking. Be ready. This is another, the third of the extra key skills I was talking about. Be ready to share your story. All of you in small groups will have done some work on this and have prepared a story. But here in Peter we read... In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect. Stories about how we became a Christian are absolutely fine, and I think we really enjoy hearing them, especially at baptisms, don't we? But have you noticed that the killer line is always, almost always, I once was like this, but now I'm like that. The killer line fact is the change that Jesus makes. So you can go into all the details you like about how you went to a Christian school and you had Christian parents and Christian friends and they brought you to, and that's all good. I'm not saying don't tell it, but the most important thing to say with clarity is Jesus has changed my life like this. I used to be A and now I'm B. So it might be, for instance, that before you were a Christian, you felt unloved, You'd ne like some of those people I mentioned before, never known unconditional love. There are people like that. When they found Jesus, they discovered that they were loved unconditionally, found joy in their heart and peace. That's the killer fact. That's what people is going is to make us attractive to people who don't yet know Jesus. I could say that before I had uh, an, a... a experience of Jesus in the last two in the last couple of years I was striving for success in my career all the time I thought the only way to be really loved and valued was to be successful in your career what rubbish then I met Jesus afresh and the striving ceased and I found peace and identity within me that stands on a rock not because of anything I do or achieve just because God loves me as I am so before I was striving, after I knew myself to be loved. I met someone last week who said that they, before they met Jesus, they had a terrible stammer. They became a Christian and the stammer went. That's a really good one, isn't it? So the before and after is the killer line. Think about what yours is. Some people might say, I was lonely, then I became a Christian, I'm still alone, but I don't have that deep longing of loneliness, that deep, dark place within me. Consider Zacchaeus, our old friend Zacchaeus in Luke. It says that Zacchaeus was a wealthy tax collector living for money. He was a self-proclaimed moneymonger. But after he met Jesus, everything changed. He declared he would pay back every penny he had stolen and give, and give half of his worth to the poor. And then there was Saul, the murderer and persecutor of Christians, who became Paul the preacher. Read that story again if you're looking for inspiration about before and after stories, about the difference knowing Jesus makes in someone's life. Have another look at Acts. So before and after stories are very powerful today. What has Jesus done for you? Rehearse it and be prepared to share it. Now this is, this is a little bit more of a subtle one. This is about listening to the Holy Spirit because we're not in this alone. If we were, we might as well give up and go home. So this is about tuning in to what God is saying, because he does prompt us. He will say, go and speak to that person over there. Have you thought of so-and-so? It's worth making a friends with them. God speaks like that today. And Julie's just going to come and read uh, Philip, the Ethiopian, and the Lamborghini. Perhaps I ought to just say why it says Lamborghini. That's because that would have been the equivalent in that day Philip was a poor guy. He hadn't got anything to his name. This guy, the Ethiopian, had a very fancy chariot. It would be like someone who worked in Topshop crossing the street to go and talk to a guy in a Lamborghini. It was that sort of a divide. That's why I've put 
Ethiopian and the Lamborghini. Thank you. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look! Here's water, why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. Sometimes we don't need supernatural, often we don't need supernatural intervention like that to tell us when there's an opportunity, a God-given opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. Sometimes it's obvious as the nose on your face. Someone said to me the other morning at church um, that someone had come up to her in the playground after school and said, there's something different about you and I want to know what it is and I want more of it. Now, I would suggest that she shouldn't say, now, is God, is this an opportunity from you? Should I share my faith or not? No, go for it. That's clearly an opportunity from God. And there are, you know, you will find obvious open doors to share your faith. Just do it. Don't worry about whether God's telling you to do it. He is. Always take opportunities to share your faith. Sometimes it's not so obvious, and we really need to listen to the Holy Spirit who prompts us and gets us moving in directions that we wouldn't otherwise have thought of. Philip, you see, could have used all sorts of excuses when he heard the Spirit saying, go across the road and speak to the guy in the Lamborghini. He could have said, you must be joking, he's very rich and I'm very poor, he won't want to speak to me. He could have said, he's completely different, class, social group, you know, he's a, he's like, I can't remember what he was now, some very learned official and I'm not. He could have said, it's the wrong language, I'm a different colour to him, he won't want to speak to me. He didn't, because he was listening, he was tuned in to what the Holy Spirit was saying. Now, it doesn't tell us how Peter heard that, Philip heard that. Um, It doesn't say whether it was an audible voice. Um, I've never heard an audible voice, but I have had hunches, you know, when I've just known in the core of my being that something was right, that I had to go somewhere, that I had to speak to someone. But that's a little bit different for different people. You may not have that, you may have something else. Other people um, see God speaking very clearly in the Bible about specific things. Sometimes people read something in the Bible that they're sure isn't really there, but they, they see that they have to go somewhere, do somewhere, something, make contact with someone. What I do, or a dream, some people hear God speaking through dreams or pictures, or some people hear an audible voice. Now, what I do know is that whatever, however God will speak to you, and it might be in many different ways, the way to develop it is to spend a lot of time with him, a lot of time listening, just coming before God and sitting with him, not necessarily reading the Bible, although if that helps you can do it, not necessarily praying all the time, but just sitting with God and asking him to speak. It takes practice, but he speaks. And as you get used to it, as you, as you become to know his voice, as you come to know his voice, you'll hear him in times when you're not 
you're not, 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 not concentrating, you know, when he'll come into your life and get you to do stuff. If you're willing, that's the other thing, of course, you have to be willing to take risks to step out for him. He will speak. Remember, too, that you're unlikely to be the whole story in someone's life. You know, Angela talked about um, how this church has played a part in her story and various people within it have. But, you know, all of Angela's childhood, she was influenced by all sorts of people in her church, by her mum and others who, had, who spoke into her life. But God often gives different bits of the jigsaw to different people to bring someone to Jesus. When we had this, you heard me say earlier about this Christian Union big mission we had in Coventry when I was there as a student. And I will never forget that after one of the big rallies and, the spe- and Ian Knox had given his altar call again, someone came forward and I was on the counselling team. This girl came forward and she said, I want to give my life to Jesus. So mentally I got all my notes out in my head and thought, right, well she needs to know this, this, this and this and does she know what she's doing? And I started, you know, I tried to, to, to launch into what I knew would have to be said. And she said, no, 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 I know all that. I've done all that. My friends have told me. I've heard it tonight. I just want to give my heart to Jesus. I sat down with her, and we prayed a prayer of commitment. It was very moving. It was very genuine. And then she went. Now, don't, I did check that she was looked after, that she was cared for, that she's got a church to go to, but she was completely covered. Now, what a privilege it was for me to have that moment, that bit of her jigsaw, that bit of her story. God asked me to do. Wow, what a privilege. I will never forget it. But I was such a tiny part because God had brought people into her life, moved her story on through all sorts of people around her. So if God asks you to do something or prompts you to do something that seems this big, it might be just a really key step for that person. It's not necessarily the whole picture. In fact, it's unlikely to be. So listen to the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm I'm hoping... Is anyone here expecting to make us some coffee by any chance? (laughs) Jenny! Great. We're going to move to coffee now. But while while we have coffee, I'd just like you to be thinking about this question because it really is a key one uh, in terms of what we've been talking about tonight where are the links with non-Christians in your life now there might not be any so think about where they are and also think about how you might be able to make some more it can be as, as adventurous and imaginative as you like and then after coffee we'll come and talk about it together and I've got some other questions for you too Thank you.